All right, kids, before you go to your class, I need a favor from you. I want you to help introduce a friend of mine that I brought with me to the church. So if you know who this is, tell me. Pascal. This is Pascal. So this is one of our friends. And what is Pascal? A chameleon. Yes, he's a lizard, but more specifically, he's a chameleon. And what is a chameleon's great skill? What can they do really well? Yeah, they can change colors. And why do they change colors? To blend in, to camouflage so nobody can see them because they're not very big and they're not very strong. So if they're going to survive, they have to blend in. And now what we normally do is I normally try and tell your parents about what you're going to learn so they can ask you questions and um, help you learn the things you're going to learn. But actually, I want to flip that this morning and I'm going to tell you what they're going to learn. Because the ability to blend in and change colors and camouflage yourself is really good if you're a chameleon, but it's not very good if you're a Christian. And what we're going to talk about in here is how for Christians, we're not to blend in and look like the world, but we're to be different. So what I want you to do is after church, you can ask them at lunch if uh, what they learned and uh, how they're doing with blending in and not being like a chameleon. So uh, you can stand up and you make your way to your class. And Maddie, if you want to take Pascal with you, you can take him. And parents, as the kids are going, um, one of the fun things about being a church plant is you con you're constantly just rolling with the punches. And uh, a couple punches we're rolling with this morning is our library uh, was still, the book fair is done, but all the books are still in there. So we didn't, we couldn't use that classroom. So parents, when you go and get the kids, uh, all of the kids will be in the hallway behind me. So K through second will be in the skills lab on the way uh, behind me, but all the kids will be that way, but they might be in different classrooms uh, than what they're using. And so thank their teachers because their teachers are just kind of rolling with it, having to adjust. And I want to thank David and the worship team because they're also just rolling with it. Cynthia uh, was up all night really sick. And so when they came this morning, uh, she wasn't here and they just kind of took over and some really grateful and thankful uh, for them for just rolling with it this morning. Now, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. And we're, we're shifting to a new section in Ephesians chapter 4. And the basic purpose of the whole rest of the book is to motivate and empower us to live life well to live it to the fullest. You've been uh, given this incredible picture of what redemption is and then uh, this transformation that we've experienced. And then now Paul calls us and says, now walk worthy of this calling. Live a life worthy of this glorious calling. And um, what he's doing for us in some ways is kind of like something that happened to me when I was in 10th grade. From Christmas of my 9th grade year to Christmas of my 10th grade year, I grew a foot. So I went from being 5'4 in 9th grade to being 6'4 in 10th grade. And I really only gained about 10 pounds. So all of that was just stretching. So it looked like Gumby. And you can imagine what it was like, like for my father trying to keep shoes on this kid who every month he needs a new shoe size. And so when I started basketball in 10th grade, you know, before the season, uh, my dad and the coach was like, we're only buying you one pair of shoes. So I don't, we don't know what size to get you, but we're not buying. So they th had this brilliant idea that they're going to buy me size 15 shoes. And they thought, he'll just grow into them. 
And so I'm still scarred by people calling me clown because, you know, I you know, walk in and I'm like 120 pounds, six foot two, and they're wearing size 15s and just look ridiculous. And the idea was that here, you're going to wear these, and I never actually made it into them. I still now only wear 14. And the idea was that you're, you're going to grow into these shoes. Um, Never quite did, but Paul wants, he's going to do something similar, but hopefully we'll grow into the image of what it means to be a healthy, thriving, vibrant community of Christians and healthy, uh, vibrant, thriving Christians. He wants us to come to a place of maturity. And his call starting in verse 17 is he's calling us to be a counterculture, to be a people that are different from the world around them. And so we're going to look at verses 17 to 24. And in this, this section, it's a really stark and shocking call to not blend in to the world around you, to be distinct, to be different. So let's follow along. And then there's a couple things that I want us to see this morning. The two basic things I want us to see is that Paul's going to lay before us. He's going to say, don't live this way. Don't walk like this. Don't live this way. Live like this. So let's follow on. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So he picks up, in your translation, verse 17, look, he says, now, or so, or therefore. And what Paul wants you to hold in mind everything that he said up until this point about what God is doing. So chapter 1, God is uniting all things under Christ. And how under Christ, or through the death of Christ, he's reconciling us to God and to one another. That's chapter 2. And in chapter 3, how God is demonstrating that the triumphant wisdom of his power is demonstrated in the life of the local church. And in chapter 4, he's going to provide ministries and community for people to grow and to reach maturity. Now he's shifting and he's going to talk, start talking about, this is how I want you to go to work out in the world. This is how my people are to live as they go out into the world. This is how you're going to build one another up. This is how you're going to grow. This is how you're going to come to a place of encouragement. And he's talking about what the church is to be like in the world. And it's fascinating because he doesn't start talking about things like um, programs or anything like that. He starts about godliness. He says that you are to be godly. You're to be a counterculture. You're to be distinct and different. So in, in, in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, it says God is responsible to give you the abilities you need. You are responsible to use them and to become holy with them. He gives the gifts. That's his responsibility. Our responsibility is to become godly with those gifts. So he's going to tell them, don't live this way any longer, 17 to 24. And then live in such a way that your life is marked by these certain things. Now notice in 17 he says, I say and testify in the Lord. So he's not saying, this is not a suggestion, it's not an invitation. It's not optional. 
He's saying, this is how, and I'm saying this in the Lord, I expect my people to live. So look, 17 through 19, first thing, this is the wrong way to live your life. Isn't it interesting? Notice he says, don't walk. That's the master metaphor for the whole rest of the book, how you walk each step daily, step by step. Don't walk or don't live like the Gentiles do. Now, it's interesting, nearly all of them were Gentiles. And so you might think, they might think, what? Don't live like that's who we are. Remind me also in high school, I was playing basketball, and uh, this, some of you kids, you won't imagine this, this was before iPhones and like GPS and things, and so we would travel different places, and uh, my parents and my best friend, his parents, were always worried that we would get lost, because we normally did, and before we would leave, his mom would always tell us, she would say, don't be a man, telling him he was driving, don't be a man, ask for directions. Don't be a man, ask for directions. Uh, and this is similar to what Paul's saying here. Don't live like the Gentiles. There's a, something that marks their life that shouldn't mark you any longer. So let's look at the three things that mark them. In 17, he tells them the condition. 18, he tells the cause. And then 19, he tells the consequences. So look at their condition. The condition is that they are darkened, or sorry, 17, don't, don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So Paul's just kind of general summary of their life is that their, their mindset, their worldview is marked by futility or meaninglessness. So he's not really talking about their ability to reason. He's talking about their obsession with things that are trivial. Their focus on things that are worthless or not significant. And what's interesting in this whole section, Paul is drawing you into wisdom literature. This is wisdom. He's using the master narrative or metaphor from Proverbs, which is walk. Your life is a walk. The most important thing about you is your daily habitual, the things you do on a habitual daily basis. This is the theme word of Ecclesiastes. We're meaningless, meaningless. It's a vapor, life under the sun. If this material world is all there is, then where can you find meaning? What things are you giving yourself over to that ultimately is just empty? And what Paul, when he walked into the city of Ephesus, he looked around and saw a city that is obsessed with idolatry and idol worship. And one of the things he'd say, this superstition, this is, it's empty, it's meaningless, it's futile. The heart of pagan religion was you worship cows and rivers and you worship stones and you worship bones. And he would say, this worship is, is meaningless. But I wonder what he would say if he walked into our world. What would he look at and say, oh, that's meaningless. The pursuits, the quest, is there any meaning? I wonder if he heard just kind of the empty platitudes that people use to talk about kind of religion and maybe the afterlife after someone dies and they say, well, we know old Joe was looking down on us. You know, so I wonder if he challenges, is there any meaning behind those platitudes? Or the easy, empty confidence that people have where we don't know if God exists, but if he does, I'm sure he's great and he would love me because who wouldn't? I wonder if he'd challenge that and say, is there any meaning there? It's meaningless. Now, under the sun, the quest for pleasure, the quest for achievement, the quest, even in Ecclesiastes, the quest for justice can be seen as a meaningless quest. So that's the condition. Now look at the cause in verse 18. He starts telling you, how does this come about? First thing he notes is because they're darkened in their understanding. And what Paul is doing here is he's going out of his way to show the mental dimension of their problem, that the light has gone out. 
They're darkened in their understanding. They're spiritually blind, and there's things they can't see. Spiritually blind. Probably one of the best ways I know to illustrate this is a story about William Wilberforce and William Pitt. So Wilberforce and Pitt, they were two um, members of British Parliament during uh, the 18th century, kind of led the abolition of the slave trade. That was Wilberforce's great life's achievement. And uh, he was a strong, godly Man, uh, he would walk every day to Parliament, and as he walked, he would quote to himself Psalm 119. Uh, it took the, that was the, the length of his, his commute, he was quoting Psalm 119. And uh, his best friend, he grew up, his best friend was William Pitt, and Pitt was the youngest prime minister in the history of England, just a brilliant man. Both of them were brilliant. And uh, Wilberforce was a strong believer, and Pitt was not. And one of the things that Wilberforce longed to... Um, have his friend, William Pitt, come to know the Lord. And one Sunday at Westminster, uh, Richard Cecil was coming in town to preach, and he was this, you know, this fabulous preacher, uh, pretty famous of the day. And Wilberforce got so excited because he was going to bring Pitt to come hear him. And then they were sitting in church, and he said Richard Cecil was just, just bringing it. And uh, Wilberforce says that he was, he was just giving life to my soul, and I was just eating it up. I was thinking, yes, yes, I'm so glad he's here. I'm so glad he's here to hear this, because this is life. And then they, they went outside and got out the door, and Wilberforce looked at Pitt and said, what did you think? I mean, tell me, you, let's, let's talk about this. And Pitt's response, he called Wilberforce Wilby. He goes, Wilby, my God. He was going on and on about life. And he started thinking, what, like, what's the difference? Why does that word bring life to me and it's nothing to you? We were born in the same place. We went to the same schools. We're about the same intelligence level. Because in reality, it's not a matter of just intelligence. For one, he was spiritually darkened because his mind he couldn't see. So it's not just, he says, they're spiritually blind. It's not just a matter of intelligence. That's why somebody like Richard Dawkins, who's a very intelligent person, but in his book, The God Delusion, he says things like, I've described the atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad. And here's someone who's a pretty intelligent person, looks at the central doctrine of Christianity, the cross, and sees it as absurd. And ridiculous. And you think just this morning, all across the globe, people from nearly every tribe and tongue on the planet have sung praises to the living Lord celebrating that act, and they see beauty and glory and life transformation in it. Why can one see it and another can't? It's spiritually darkened in their understanding. And notice the next thing that alienated from the life of God. They've been separated because that's what all sin does. That's all brokenness and that's where it begins. There's this, there's this flow because we are first connected to the Lord and when that relationship is broken, the spiral effect is then we become broken on the inside. We become broken in our relationships and the world experiences the brokenness. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 3, the cycle of brokenness. And he says it begins there because they're alienated from the Lord. They're separated from God, and then notice their hearts are hardened. Sin always produces this hardening. You become less sensitive. I think it's one of the sad, tragic things that you can see in people's life as they slowly become harder and colder and colder. And it brings this alienation, this separation. And notice he says they're alienated from the life of God, and it's because of the ignorance. Again, there's ignorance. There's things they just don't know. They're ignorant of God himself. 
So maybe they spend all of their times with lesser things because they don't know him. They're ignorant of his glory. They're ignorant of his majesty. They're ignorant of his beauty. They're ignorant of his power. They're ignorant of his holiness, his justice. They're ignorant of his love. They're ignorant of his mercy. They don't know him. And then look at the cycle of the consequences in verse 19. They become callous, become hard, calcify. Your heart becomes callous. You lose all sense of feeling with no capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. And then they give themselves to sensuality which is throwing off all restraint and kind of parading and flaunting yourself. And then impurity and given over to greed. Impurity, unrestrained sexual behavior. Greedy, never satisfied, always needing more, more, more. Where the self is at the center. Always consuming and never gratified. And so it's a real dark picture of what the Gentile world was like. Now, it's an interesting question to think, what would somebody who is not a part of their church, or a gent- what would they say to that description? Would they say, oh yeah, that's us. That's who we are. Or would they be offended by that? Would they say, no, that's not us. See, what's interesting is Paul's talking to people who every one of them have been, had been brought out. They were Gentile, them would have heard that description and probably said, yeah, that was true. That's how we really were. We didn't know it then, but looking back, that's how we see we really were. In some sense, this is kind of like addict language. Have you ever been around an addict who, uh, you know, when they're, when they're, when they're locked into the, 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 the bounds of, of their addiction, you know, they can't see it. If you ask them to describe their self, of course I'm in control. I can stop this whenever I want. Of course I'm not manipulative and conniving and not going to bring devastation on myself and those around me. I'm in total control. But then once the addiction is broken and they move to a place of life and they look back, the way they describe it is like, I was in bondage. I was not even myself. I was in bondage. And one of the remarkable things is when you hear often people's transformation who've moved from death to life, the way they describe their movement is that sin in many ways is like one of the biblical images is that you're in bondage. You're enslaved. You're enchained. And so many talk about the abject mystery of our misery of life that's trapped in sin. But the beauty of the gospel is that on the cross, Christ paid the ransom price to open up the doors and to break the chains. And what he's done when somebody's transformed, they've been brought out from death to life, as we saw in chapter 2. And then now, all of a sudden, they walk into the world where they have sunshine, and then they begin to see and blink with amazement and begin to realize just the life that they have come from and the life they've come to and how beautiful it can be. And they begin to realize just in some way the filth that they were living in. And they recognize it. But one of the challenges is that so often in our dark moments, maybe when people have too much to drink or are around the wrong crowd or spend too much time indulging in self-pity, we crawl back into the dungeon and crawl back into the old cell and curl up with the filth. But the door's open. That's what Paul wants them to see. The door's open. The same grace that sets you free is the grace that can keep you free. And so it's open. So he calls them, don't live like that any longer. You receive no life from it. And he wants them to be this counterculture that's different from those around them. And I think as we think about the counterculture that Paul wants to create in healthy Christian community, one of the marks is one of the, the powers of it is the power of facing your real problem. You know, we live in a world where um, 
It's, we live in such a blame-shifting, finger-pointing, excuse-making, accusation-lobbing world. And the church is to be one of the few places where that doesn't happen. It's one of the reasons every week we have confession of sin and communion, because this is one moment throughout the week where you can pause and you can just own it. That actually sin, my sin, is my problem. And the blood of the Lamb is my only hope and my only solution. And so what we see is he's telling them to look at this world. In many ways, how you live or how you walk, it begins with how you think. See, our minds are not neutral. And this broken walk will come because their hearts are hard, the minds are dark, and ultimately their lives are lonely because they're separated from God. And it leads to meaningless. And so the transformation comes is fused with meaning and purpose. So he says, don't live this way any longer. Now he's going to shift in verse 20 and notice that strong, but that is not the way you learn Christ. And he says, this is the way to live. And two things to notice. Notice the contrast in the command, but you're different. This isn't how you learned Christ. And what's really interesting about this phrase is notice he said, you learned Christ. You learned a person. Christianity is learning a person. You know, in one sense, it's not a subject. You, we often think you can learn either subjects or skills. So like you can learn anatomy or you can learn physics or you can learn like how to hit a golf ball, maybe. Or you can learn, you know, certain skills uh, or subjects. But this is actually learning a person. You learned Christ. You're shaped by him. You submit to him. You bow down to him. You love him. Had the, uh, well, I was going to say unfortunate, but uh, we were looking on our computer this week trying to find some things, and Cynthia was trying to find something, and somehow, I have no idea how, but all of these emails that I sent to her in 2004, when we just, first, we weren't even dating, because uh, it, took, it, took, it took Cynthia two years to admit we were even dating, uh, but... <laughs> In 2004, where I was trying to, you know, I was trying to win her, and uh, she starts reading these, and I just, it's just this terrible moment of embarrassment, and like, oh, I thought that sounded so good at the time. It's so embarrassing. Please, delete this, delete this. And uh, it was this funny kind of cycle of me trying to figure out what's the best way to win her. Now, I'm trying to learn a person. And this is one of the beautiful things about real discipleship is coming to a place where you learn the loving reality of a person, their likes, their dislikes, what they desire and what they um, care for you uh, to be. You learn Christ. But notice what he says, if indeed you heard about him, heard of him. In the Greek, literally, it's just you heard him. It's kind of an awkward, it's an awkward grammatical construction because it's you heard him. If indeed you were taught by him or taught of him, but you heard him. And there's two things if you're going to learn Christ. You have to hear his voice and you have to continually learn and be taught by him. And that's one of the goals of corporate worship where you come into his presence. Our desire for you every Sunday is to enter into his presence through his word and spirit so you hear him you hear his voice, and we need the power of the Spirit, so you cease to hear my voice, and you hear his voice through his word. You hear him. That's what changes you, when you hear his voice. And then you have to be taught by him, and continually to grow, and to learn, and to continually be taught by him, so you can encounter a person. 
Some of you might know the story of Sundar Singh, who was a uh, somewhat famous uh, missionary, uh, grew up in India, and he was born into a very affluent Sikh family, uh, born in 1889, and uh, he was born just kind of outside his home. They were uh, kind of the matrons, I guess, of this community, and there was a missionary group who had came in and kind of set up their compound, and they were kind of uh, doing their mission work, and his mother uh, started to become really friendly with them and was building a relationship, and then tragically, when he was 14, uh, she died, and he, he raged. It kind of, her death plunged him into a season of just violence and despair, and he blamed the missionaries and blamed God for uh, her death, and so he had the, the rage and then the kind of social capital and ability to be able to uh, persecute them, and uh, he ridiculed their faith, and he had this one kind of tra- traumatic moment where he took their Bible and sort of tearing out the pages and lighted it on fire, and then this is what I'm going to do to you and your God, and then he, miraculously he was converted. It was this remarkable kind of miraculous experience where uh, he encountered the living Lord, and then he was converted, and he started uh, to share the gospel. And to share his faith, and there was kind of a famous uh, kind of back and forth between one of his uh, Hindu professors uh, at the school who was kind of aggressively challenging him about uh, why he would uh, convert. And the professor kept saying, what do you have in Christianity that you didn't have before? And his answer was Christ. And then the president, no, 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 you don't understand. I want to know what do you have? Like, what doctrine do you have? How does this make sense of the world that you couldn't make sense of before? What do you have that you didn't have before? He said, Christ. And he says, no, I'm talking about, like, what type of ethical ideal? Does this help you live in a certain way? Like, why, what do you have that you didn't have before? And he says, I have Christ. That's what I have that I didn't have before. And that's what the essence of Christianity is. You come to a person. And so you might be wrestling and struggling with what does this mean to believe? What is it going to cost me for how I live? But the first step and the first question is God doesn't give us like airtight arguments. He gives us an airtight person. You receive a person. And so that's the the contrast. But then notice the commands. What's the content? What did they learn? And the key principle here is that their lives are to be a continuing living out of the implications of their break with the past. The gospel is to shape how they're to live all of their life. Notice he gives three commands, one in 22, 23, 24. Put off the old self, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new self. You've been created new. Put off the old, be renewed, and then put on the new. So he's talking about this remarkable transformation that they're going to go through. And one of the things that one of the great things about Christianity is it doesn't just give you a person, it actually gives you the ability and the power to change. So I think if we're all honest, you know, one of the great things is you have the resources now to be made new, to be new. And I think if we're all honest, you know if you're honest, you want to change. You want to be different. We all want this. And here's the resources and the power to experience this. We were at our church in Alabama. Um, Sundays could be long and kind of challenging. And I would preach, you know, full suit. So I have a full black preacher suit. And uh, when I would come home on Sunday evening, I don't know how we got into this habit, but this happened every Sunday night for like a year. My oldest daughter, Maddie, at the time, she was like two and a half. And I would come home and I would just kind of collapse in my chair. And then she'd crawl up into my lap and she'd look at me and smile. She goes, Daddy, you need to change. 
And I would laugh, and I would say, you have no idea how true that is. I would do that every Sunday night for like a year. And uh, we all, we know we need to change. But where is the power to experience it. And Paul starts it here. And the, the key is that Christianity is not about becoming nice. It's about becoming new. You become a new person. You're made new. Look at the recreation language. The old self is gone. The new self, you're going to be renewed, recreated. You put on the new self because you're created in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. The reason why we don't act like a chameleon is because we don't need to change our colors because we've had our entire character changed. Because we're not reptiles or lizards. We've been made new. We're new people. And the reason we, um, now he's going to go into the whole next section is all of the different behaviors that they need to put off and then put on. So you need to put away falsehood. You need to be angry and not sin. You need to no longer steal. You need to let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness go away from you. He's going to give them a whole cycle of things that they need to do. But Christianity, before it's these things you have to do, it's something you have to be. Before you can put off and put on all these behaviors, you have to be made new. It is being before it's doing it's not just how you live, it's who you are. And so often people kind of wrestle with this when they're coming to the faith. Well, what will that mean? Will that mean I have to start this or stop that? And all of those questions are questions that come down the line. The first question is who you are. You know, one of the great, probably one of the greatest theologians in church history, uh, St. Augustine, Augustine, however you want to say his name, uh, and his story is really interesting, unique, kind of from his own accounts growing up. He was pretty much, a, we'd say, a sex addict. And uh, the Lord broke him and renewed him. And uh, there's a story that one day he was kind of walking throughout the city and one of, uh, kind of his whole flings ran up to him and kind of threw her arms around and said, Augustine, it is I. And then he just looked at her and almost with shame on his face, just said, I know, but it is no longer I. It's no longer I. I am different. I have been made new. And the place you get the power to put off the old self and to put on the new is because you look at the one who put off his original self and took on another self to come down to save and redeem us. See, we can put off the old self and put on the new because we serve a Savior who did not think that equality with God was a thing to be grasped. He put off his heavenly royal regal robes. He put on himself the form of a servant. He humbled himself and he came down even to the point of death, so that we could be raised up to the point of life. He put off his royal righteousness so we could put on his holiness. Christianity is not about just becoming nice. It's about being made new. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, one of the things I think, this is what it means. It means coming to a person. It means being made new of your life is realizing how to think about who you are. So we're going to pause here and uh, we're going to stop and then we're going to spend a few minutes just praying these things into reality. We want to pray them for ourselves. And I also just want to spend a few minutes uh, praying specifically for people and things in our congregation as we think this whole section is marked on how to walk well. 
You're to walk with one another. And one of the parts of just walking with one another is we rejoice with those who rejoice, we weep with those who weep, and we try and walk um, together. So um, we're going to spend a few minutes just praying uh, first for ourselves and then praying for different members of our congregation. So Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the transformation that is possible to us. And we ask that you would help us all to seek it, to to desire it, to long for it, to live for and to love Christ the person. We pray that you would help us to hear his voice, to know his ways and to follow his will and to, to love him and honor him and want to serve him. And we confess to you how so often our lives are marked by things that are, that are trivial and they're futile and they're meaningless and they don't last. And so we confess that to you and we confess to you how often whether we, even, we do, in so many ways we don't even realize we're shaped by the ways of this world. And we confess to you that we live into a world that's just, um, there's, there's ambient anxiety just all around. And we ask that you would help us to be different, like a counterculture who have a strong hope and a strong joy and a strong peace. And we ask that you would help us to not be self-exalting, but to humble ourselves like your son and to, to serve and to, to love.